Welcome to this edition of At The Mic. I'm your host, Keith Malinak. Today, we meet Tom Russell, and we hear his story next. But first, I want to talk about Thanksgiving. I know, it's still over a month away, but I'm the kind of guy who likes to be prepared. Time flies, and you need to be ready. And if you want a little pumpkin spice taste and aroma in your life, you'll want to head over to American Pride Roasters Coffee and pick up a bag of their first Thanksgiving blend, It's phenomenal stuff, and it's going to fit in perfectly over the next couple of months as we get deep within the fall season. If you know me, I love history, and I love Thanksgiving too. And since we've been talking about the first Thanksgiving blend from APR Coffee on this program as of late, I thought I would bring you some facts about uh, U.S. presidents and the history of pardoning turkeys just ahead of the national holiday. Now, Harry Truman was the first president to pardon a turkey, but that was ceremonial because... Harry Truman went and ate that turkey for Thanksgiving dinner. (laughs) Yikes. Wow, okay. Well, John F. Kennedy actually let a Thanksgiving turkey go, and then Richard Nixon later sent one off to a petting zoo. And then the turkey pardoning tradition wasn't formalized, get this, until George H.W. Bush in 1989. I do hope you'll head over to aprcoffee.com. Do yourself a favor. And try the first Thanksgiving coffee blend. It may not save your life, but it's not going to hurt. That's aprcoffee.com. Promo code ATM at checkout, and you're going to save 10% on your order. That's aprcoffee.com. Promo code ATM. Get there today. You're listening to At The Mic with Keith. An independent podcast production. Tom Russell is my guest this week on At The Mic. He's a firearms expert with connections to a legend in the field. He's going to tell us all about that. He has traveled the world and he has some stories to tell from those adventures. He's also got some tips on helping kids to overcome bullies. Without further delay, here's my chat with Tom Russell, starting right now on At The Mic. Tom, thanks so much for making time. I appreciate it. Keith, I appreciate you having me. Thank you. Absolutely. You were born in Gainesville, Texas. That's right. You were raised in Oklahoma. That's right. Which is a beautiful state, by the way. I mean, it's so underrated. We've talked Mm -hmm. about that on this podcast before with Andrew Heaton, how Oklahoma is one of those secrets. And... You want to praise it, but you don't want the secret to get out, you know? It's kind of like the the Texas Hill Country. Right. Uh, fortunately, not too many people know about it. It's our little secret. Exactly. Yeah. Oklahoma, same way. Yeah. So let's not brag too much about it. Okay. You, know? <laughs> you bet. So you're back here in Texas, though. I was introduced to you through your daughter because she's she's in the business where she's pitching uh, interview ideas, guest ideas to shows. And I asked her uh, if she had anybody in mind she thought would be interesting on this podcast. And she mentioned you, her dad, (laughs) and I was fascinated. And I thought, you know what? I want to talk to him. You know, never mind all these other things you're pushing. I want to talk to this guy. So I'm so (laughs) glad that you made time to come down here. So you grew up with uh, three other siblings. Are you the oldest, the youngest? I was the third son. Okay. We've got a little sister, yeah. Okay. Oh, my goodness. So how was it being kind of in the middle there? You know, ours was uh, convoluted Uh (laughs) upbringing. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It was uh, I wasn't able to be around my older two brothers as much as I would have liked Uh uh, as I was growing up. And, you know, just kind of the typical story. Uh, It would be difficult to say, okay, what would, you know, your normal childhood look like? You know, it's one of those things. Yeah, Yeah, man. 
Okay, so I love the state of New Mexico. Mm-hmm. My family and I have covered pretty much every corner except for Dinosaur State Park. Mm-hmm. And that's where your earliest memory is, huh? I remember running through there and I, you know, I was just walking because I remember running through uh, <laughs> from place to place with my, my brother David. And uh, I think that's my earliest you think so? uh, memory. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's a good one. New Mexico is another one of those beautiful states that you kind of don't want that secret getting out, you know? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> there are some pockets of the country that have yet to be completely discovered. Mm-hmm. And so we don't want to. And keep down on the down low, right? So you're a minister. That's right. By trade. Yeah. That's for right. lack of a better way to describe it. Uh, very cool. So tell us how, I mean, this is quite a time in our country's history. Yeah. Probably, I don't guess that there's a an easy time to preach the word of God in this country, but it just seems like it would be a little bit more challenging these days, huh? Yeah. And, and the world as far as is what you're up against. Do you know, uh, I mean, obviously there's uh, so much going on, uh, but in some ways uh, that just provides greater opportunity. Mm. And uh, when you see such a prevalence of darkness uh, and confusion and right. the resultant chaos, um, that really, really begins to provoke the heart of good mm. people because they recognize it for what it is. And it actually generates a greater interest uh, in God and His will, it's definitely uh, a challenging time. But it's interesting that when times become difficult, it really encourages the good to rise to the top, to stand up, to speak the truth, and you're just compelled to. I mean, you, you know, you you can't be a, a sure. decent, good person and and not stand strong. That's a great way to explain it. Absolutely. Now. When you're not preaching, yes. you are a master firearms instructor. I am. Mm-hmm. And I love this. You were certified by Lieutenant Colonel Jeff Cooper. Yes. You got to tell us, uh, for those that aren't overly familiar, and I know you're going to have a lot more details about him than even I'm aware of being into firearms. Mm-hmm. Uh, tell us about how, uh, how it was knowing him. It was uh, amazing. It was everything that I ever thought it would be. I uh, had uh, first been drawn to him when I was a kid and could get a couple of quarters together to buy a gun magazine. That tells you how far back it was when a (laughs) gun magazine went for about 50 cents. And um, I bought Guns and Ammo, and he wrote uh, for Guns and Ammo since, you know, up until the year of his death, 2006, um, beginning in 1958. And Yeah, really. And uh, he had Cooper on handguns. And I would just, something just drew me to him. Uh, difficult childhood, uh, my father wasn't present, needing, in, in serious need of that positive masculine influence, you know? Uh-huh. And he communicated that, and it was very interesting. He didn't say, okay, this is what a man is supposed to be. Uh, he just spoke and wrote and communicated the concept uh, which was just like, you know, water to a desert plant. Uh, and it was not only that way for me, it's been that way for many, many, many people uh, who were drawn to his writing and drawn to his influence. Is there a particular book that stands out in your mind as someone who is getting into guns mm-hmm. that maybe there's something that he wrote that you would send people to? Uh, a wise man once said that a man should read everything that Jeff Cooper ever wrote. Uh, <laughs> and and it's really true. It's, right? it's very, very 
informative, it's educational, uplifting, but the book that probably most would, well, in fact, I'm, I teach the Jeff Cooper General Rifle class out at the NRA Whittington Center in New Mexico. Huh. Uh, my last class, we had a good guy, very good guy. His name is Steve Clifford, and uh, we were talking about this because I really uh, do all that I can uh, to promote the colonel's legacy, and so we were discussing uh, the colonel in the class and Steve mentioned I, that he had read To Ride, Shoot Straight, and Speak the Truth from, by Jeff Cooper in 1990, and it changed his life. Wow. And that's really kind of a common <laughs> occurrence. Yeah, yeah and, and in fact, if folks aren't familiar, I tried to write these down from memory before I looked them up, but tell us the four rules of firearm safety oh, sure. that he came up with. Because, I mean, to this day, when you learn to shoot these are the four things that that need to be implanted in your mind absolutely they're the four general firearm safety rules of uh the four branches of service uh i'm sure the coast guard teaches the same thing so we might say five and um every police department promotes them and should promote them even more they're actually prevalent around the world at this point Mm -hmm. and the brilliance is in the fact that they're concise and that there's only four there's not 32 you know and so they're easy to remember they're so comprehensive Mm -hmm. you you practically have to violate three of them before serious injury occurs yeah so rule number one is all guns are always loaded right just assume that they're loaded it doesn't matter what anybody says Mm -hmm. Uh, that's clear no you it's your responsibility to check it so all guns are always loaded Mm -hmm. never let the muzzle cover anything you're not willing to destroy yeah. And then the colonel described rule number three as the golden rule. Keep your finger off the trigger till your sights are on the target. You know, believe it or not, these guns are designed to fire when you press the trigger. And <laughs> yeah. when you do, that's not a problem with the firearm design. You uh-huh. know. Uh, so number four is always make sure your target and what's beyond. So we don't what's, shoot at right. uh, sudden movement or uh, e- even gunfire. We have to be we have to clearly identify um, either. Uh, it is a legitimate target as a threat. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we have to be very sensitive to what's beyond. What's, what's behind there, yeah. 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 Because yeah. bullets are designed to penetrate, right? Uh, we had a one uh, uh, um, very interesting incident in 2012, December, out at the Portland Mall in Portland, Oregon, where a young man uh, was there with his fiancée walking through the mall, just having a nice time. They had a little six-month-old child with them, and they heard gunfire coming from the food court and so he secured her in a uh, a jewelry store behind the counter and then being a good strong man i mean he went to the sound of the gunfire and uh, had a glock 40 with him uh license to carry and he gets to the food court sees the bad guy uh, the guy is uh, already murdered two people and he is experienced a malfunction with his ar-15 so the good guy draws his glock 40 takes him at gunpoint, realizes that if he presses the trigger, the rounds are going to go through into the food court, sidesteps behind cover. The bad guy sees him, uh, takes off running, and runs into the service hallway uh, behind uh, the stores there and gets back in there. And he does what they do, an active shooter, not a terrorist, but an active shooter, three out of four times uh, when they're confronted with force. Uh, they'll terminate right there. They'll take their own life. And that's exactly what he did. Oh, wow. And so this this 22-year-old young man just, I mean, superb, did exactly what he should have done. I hadn't intended on asking you this, but you just made me think of this. How are you with constitutional carry? 
and and maybe maybe my question is a little bit more nuanced than that. How are you with open carry? Because I'm of the mindset that I'm carrying a weapon. I know I'm carrying a weapon, but I don't want to tip off somebody yeah. else a threat because then I become, correct me if I'm wrong with this line of thinking, I become the first target of this guy if he decides to start shooting up the place. How are you on that being a gun guy um, as far as open carry, I guess, is concerned? Okay. Um you spoke to the primary issue right there. So let's look at open carry first. Uh, you spoke to the primary issue in that... Uh, because I almost wanted you, to... Mm -hmm. I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I, it's like I want it to be legal mm -hmm. only because I know that there's going to be a target before me. Is that a terrible way to think? Uh -huh. Well, <laughs> I, I, I'm thankful that it's legal. Mm -hmm. um, and it, of course, it always has been with regard to a long gun, a uh, shotgun or right. a rifle. It's amazing right. you could walk around with... Uh, a 12 gauge slung over your shoulder, uh, but if you were exposing a 22 pistol on your belt, mm -hmm. uh, you know, you were in violation of law. So I think it was a ridiculous law. And I think that there is something um, to good people seeing a good man carrying a gun. Um, my sister lives in Oklahoma and they had passed open carry. Mm -hmm. And uh, she said, she sent a message to me and says, well, I saw my first one. I saw a guy carrying a pistol openly. And she said, you know, it, it was comforting to me. Uh -huh. I thought, you wait, something happens here, he'll take care of it. Right. And, and so it does have that effect, and I think that's great. The problem with it is that if you're caring openly, you lose the opportunity to exercise the, the initiative to start the fight at your discretion. Right, the element of surprise is now that's gone. It. That's it. Yeah, now, and, and constitutional carry just means you don't have to go through the training, that's right. et cetera, et cetera. I think it's very important and I would assume that Jeff Cooper would as well, that you should probably be trained before mm -hmm. you start carrying this deadly weapon. What well, are your thoughts? You, you, everybody needs the, the training. You should be trained. The question is, uh, does the state have the right to dictate training uh -huh. and a natural right that's constitutionally affirmed? See, this that's, is, that's the and issue, this is where it? the rubber meets the road. That's right. Absolutely. So where do you come down as far as constitutional carry as opposed to mandated training from mm -hmm. the state. Where's that, where do you draw that line then as someone who is a proponent of firearms? Mm -hmm. Yes. Well, I, I, I fully support constitutional carry. Mm -hmm. I, I called uh, the governor's office. I called several places promoting it as a firearms instructor. Even though, obviously, it's going to cost me some money, fine. I, I don't want to make money at the expense of somebody else's right and so uh, I think that it's desperately important that we have constitutional carry. And the truth of the matter is, if we need as many good people carrying a gun as possible and constitutional carry really provides for some being able to carry a gun who would not otherwise be able to do so. Uh, let's say that you have the example I always use is you have a, a waitress. She's a single mom. She's got three kids. She's doing everything mm -hmm. to provide food, clothing and shelter for them. Um, she has been given a, a pistol. Uh, maybe by a family member or something like that, but she really doesn't have the money for um, the um, license or perhaps even my training. Mm -hmm. And yet uh, she doesn't have 
the right, the authority to carry that pistol to defend her life sure. from, uh, you know, some potential stalker, maybe an estranged husband or something yeah. anyway. Right. So I see some real problems with requiring the license. Now, I really encourage everyone to continue to get the license because uh, if you've gone through that background check, you don't have to go through it again when you go to purchase a pistol, number one. And then number two, if you travel in a state uh, that we have reciprocity with, but they do not have constitutional carry, you can carry concealed there. So there's still advantages to getting the license to carry. Yeah. Okay. No, I get But it. constitutional carry is a, a wonderful thing, mm-hmm. and so we've got it, and I'm thankful gotcha. we do. So you mentioned the young waitress who maybe was given a pistol and needs it for self-protection. <clears throat> a lot of times it seems that people that want to get into firearms and want to carry a weapon with them for self-defense mm-hmm. It almost seems like gun stores and a lot of gun-minded people, you almost get this feeling that as you're getting introduced to them that it's an exclusive club and I can't believe you don't know what this Mm. does or what this part is and what do you mean you can't disassemble a weapon and put it back together in front of me? You know, it just seems like, I think the equivalent would be me at a Starbucks. If I'm standing in line and I'm standing there, I'm not part of the club. And it's like, I don't know, what is a grande? What's mm-hmm. a venti? Oh my gosh, little people. I can't believe you don't know what this is. Uh, what mm-hmm. do you mean you don't know what a uh, 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 mocha frappuccino? You know, and, and it yes. almost feels like this, this arrogance with some people. I don't get that vibe from you, mm-hmm. but it seems like there are a lot of gun store owners or gun aficionados who aren't as welcoming as they should be to people that want to participate in this culture mm-hmm. how do we get around that what would you tell the gun expert that has someone walking in that has never dealt with a gun before to make them feel at ease and say hey this is your constitutional right let me help you learn it that, that I, I would tell them exactly what you just said that you're dealing with someone who is completely inexperienced and that their first responsibility is to inform and to encourage not to impress and that's the problem uh, I need you to know that I'm, you know, this yeah. this big expert That's and that I point. am the elite on this. And no, we need to come at from we need to come at it from the opposite direction. This is someone my responsibility when they come to my range. Uh, quite often, uh, I'm dealing with females. I, I mm-hmm. I'm training ladies all the time, and many of them have never handled a handgun before. And I let them know that by the end of the first day. They're going to know the safety rules. They're going to know the legal and moral requirements for exercising deadly force. They're going to know how to properly handle the gun, load it, unload it, handle it safely. Uh, They're going to know how to use the sights to properly press the trigger, how to stand, how to control the recoil. By the end of the day, they're going to be presenting the pistol from the holster, an efficient draw stroke, putting multiple rounds, high center mass on the target. And I've had lady after lady tell me, you said that, and I didn't really believe it, and then <laughs> they do it. And, uh-huh. But it's because that is my job, and it would be whether I was standing behind a counter at a gun shop or, like, in my circumstances, I'm out there on the range training them to fight with a pistol, uh, is to inform them in a way that they will most easily receive it, most effectively receive it, and then be have the confidence and the knowledge to use it to defend their lives. That's what we're there for. Yeah. I'm, not, I'm not there to impress them, well, this is Tom Russell. I am there for 
them and to build them up and to provide them with the skills because they're going to need it. Yeah, and you're teaching them exactly what Jeff Cooper absolutely designed. That's great. So aside from being a firearms instructor yes. and being a minister, you've held other jobs in your life, Yeah. right? What's it like working in an oil field, Tom? It was brutal. It was, uh, um, <laughs> my, my father had worked years and years in the oil field. And when he came at, out and uh, when I was 18 years old and looked at the rattletrap rig that I was working on, it just really scared him to death. He was um, really concerned I was going to get hurt uh, uh-huh. because it was such a... Uh, dilapidated uh-huh. uh, rig. Were you in West Texas or where were you? Oklahoma. Oklahoma. Southern okay. Oklahoma. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Yeah. Because it seems like when you hear about these oil field jobs, yeah. they sound tough, but it sounds like at least today, like you could make some good money out here in the oil fields, but you really have to earn that money, huh? Well, it's a, but it's a different world. I just found this out recently because I've been out of it for 40 years, over right. 40 years. And uh, everything is uh, electronic now, everything. I mean, there's oh, wow. uh, you, uh, guys are not out there uh, dealing with a turntable and working with tongs. Yeah, they're, and uh, a cat line. They're not doing that anymore. Really? Yeah, not at all. So it's not as yeah. tough as it used to be, huh? No, it's, it's not the same thing at all. We, <laughs> we didn't, <laughs> our rig was so dilapidated, we didn't have tongs to break the pipe apart. So we were using a 64-inch pipe wrench and we would wrap the cat line around on it and take out the slack and we broke the handle off of a 64 inch pipe wrench uh no tell, don't tell me it was spewing oil at the time uh, no 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 okay. not okay. at all not at all <laughs> okay. yeah we were coming up out of the hole oh. and uh but the fact that i mean no one was injured was just god uh, you can imagine the stress yeah. involved in snapping that because no. the it i mean the uh uh, where it broke was it's larger around than your wrist and it just of course snapped it oh, so it, it's a different world out there today of course they make a lot more money sure uh and uh i, I mean we but it were, sounds like it sounds mm-hmm. like the work used to be much more difficult yet pay much less it did uh-huh. well of course you had to factor in uh, inflation and stuff like sure. that which is uh we're talking about probably 19 80. Okay. Uh, yeah, that would have been 1980. So we're talking over 40 years ago. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, you were in the Marine Corps. Mm-hmm. Where are some of the places that you've been? <laughs> California. Just California? <laughs> Just California. Good for you. All right. Yeah, you got to stay I was, stateside. Yeah. <laughs> I was uh, trained uh, on the mortar. And uh, then, uh, of course, the Marines are going to put you where they, they want you. And so they... I was stationed at Concord Naval Weapons Station just northeast of San Francisco, and uh, we were in a special weapons area, and that's what we guarded, uh, waiting for the terrorist attack that never happened. Right, right. <clears throat> that almost seems like a, it would be a foreign country, though, today, if oh. you were stationed in California. <laughs> uh, I was, of course, being raised in Oklahoma. Right. I was expecting all kinds of insanity, and we got out there, and uh, it was just a beautiful area, mm. you know, but... It's changed quite it's a bit. It's changed quite a bit, yeah. So you have been married to Liz for yes. 32 years. Good for you, man. <clears throat> Where did you guys meet? Uh, we met right over here in North Dallas. We were working at the same place. Not too long ago, we went back there. It's the um, it's the Doubletree Hotel now. At that time, it was the Crown Plaza at uh. Midway and LBJ. Uh-huh. And uh, not too long ago, it was, it was pretty cool. We went back, and I took a picture of her in the doorway where she was standing the first time I ever saw her, you know. So it was pretty cool. Yeah, that is cool, man. Very cool. So you've got some hobbies. Yeah. Right? Uh, Hunting and shooting, obviously. Yeah. 
And you've been hunting in Africa. I have. Twice. That's right. That's like a little Teddy Roosevelt action there, oh, you know? Yeah. What, what, what did you hunt over there? In South Africa, I hunted non-dangerous game, uh, kudu and wildebeest. Wait, what's, what's kudu? What oh, is it? it's a beautiful... You make me Google this. Yeah, you should. It's okay. a beautiful spiral horned antelope, and there is beautiful and elegant, about the size of an elk, a yearling elk, and uh, just breathtaking. Okay. And they're the... Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So that, that's that... Weird horned animal you yeah. always see, but I just never knew the name of. That's what it is. Okay. Yeah. All right. And uh, what else did you uh, bag over there? Uh, in South Africa, Impala and Warthog. Uh-huh. And yeah. Then uh, a Warthogs, few years later. man. What was that like? You know, Are they're... they aggressive? No. Or? Perhaps if you happen to be run up in front of them and they're running blind, they might plow <laughs> into you. But they're not... Uh, you know, you kind of hear at times about... The feral hogs and the boars in Europe, you know, yeah. Yeah, boy, if you're in front of them, they'll slash you when they go by. But I've never heard that okay. about the warthog. Uh, All right. Then a few years later, I hunted in Tanzania. Oh, what, I, what were you chasing there? Uh, lion, leopard, buffalo, all the oh. all the dangerous game, except for rhino. There's were no rhino in that okay. area. You know. And any luck with the dangerous ones? Oh yeah, I took oh. buffalo, lion, and uh, leopard. You? I sure did. Wow. Yeah. Wow, that's. that's... Hey, people, it's so interesting, you know. Of course, people. Wow, did you? That's just so sad. And 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 it's like people have no concept of the harsh reality nothing dies of old age in africa except for possibly elephant everything is pulled down and eaten when it is sufficiently weak that the lion pride or the hyenas can pull it down They'll take and there care. it is a slow hard death whereas we're paying uh, an incredible amount of money the majority of which goes to conservation right. fees to maintain right. people don't animals. And they don't realize the, that. The, that is, I'm so glad you mentioned that word because it really triggered in me the symbiosis mm-hmm. between conservation and hunting. I mean, it's a real thing. Did I use that word right, by yes, the way? Yes, you did. Okay. Exactly. Because, I mean, it's a, it's a hand-in-hand relationship. Yes. It's not like, oh, we're out there just mowing down animals and just driving back home and calling it a day. No, it's, it's a relationship. If there was not hunting, and this is a fact, if there wasn't hunting, there would be no wild game or very little of it left in Africa. Um, I hunted in the Salu Game Reserve in Tanzania, and it's that game reserve is the size of Switzerland. There are 50 concessions, and there was one that was devoted to photographic safaris. And people say, well, we'll just go over there and take pictures. There is no market for that. Mm -hmm. People are not willing to pay that kind of money, the kind of money it would take. In fact, the other 49 concessions, I assure you, support that 50th because people are not going to be willing to pay. Sixty to seventy thousand dollars to go over there and spend. now this was sixteen years ago. I'm sure it's well over a hundred, two hundred thousand dollars to do what I did, mm. and people are not going to pay that to go take pictures. Right. Okay. Uh, and so when you stop the hunting and you pull the hunters out of the field, all the outfitting companies, mm. the game scouts who would be accompanying the outfitters, all of those people are out of the job. You pull them out, and then the animals become a nuisance. And I'll give you a quick example. I saw just a heartbreaking video um, from Kenya where hunting was outlawed in 77, and so no big game hunting. And um, 
they had a lion coming into a small village and it was taking livestock and it was a threat to the villagers. Mm -hmm. And so the game scouts went out there and caught it on video with a fully automatic AK-47 and they just obliterated this lion, dragged him over into the field and that was it. Mm. In Tanzania, that lion would have brought 60 to $80,000 in conservation fees a portion of that money would have gone to that village. And instead, it's just a rotting carcass out there. And so my point is, all of this, hunters keep the animals alive. And that's, a, that's indisputable. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just, it, it truly is. When you remove the emotion from it, that's the fact. I'm glad you explained it like that. Yeah. I mean, that, that, that's fascinating to think it actually is doing more harm than good when you outlaw hunting. It truly hunting. does. Okay. It truly does. So... You have, I love this, provided security and worked on archaeological digs. So you were providing security while, while the archaeologists were doing the digging? I was, I was doing both. I was participating with them oh, wow. in the dig and providing security. Um, and this was in Israel and in Turkey. What were you guys, what were the digs for? Well, in Israel, uh, the first dig, we, we actually worked on several different ones. Uh, the first one was between Jerusalem and Bethlehem, and it was really a quite incredible place. It, it's thought that that was the original location of ancient Bethlehem. Wow. And uh, a, a second, one of the things that contributes to that conclusion is that um, there was a second century uh, church at that location, and in the mosaic of the floor, it said the birthplace of Christos, the birthplace of Christ, wow. was in that location. Yes, oh. uh, I mean, just fascinating, fascinating. And um, uh, I mean, I could go on and on about the things that we saw and the things that we experienced. Tell us some of it, huh? Um, well, in one area, in ancient times, they would actually hollow out. They would take. There's so much rock, and I mean, I'm talking about solid rock. Uh, when uh, the Lord said, "Thou art Peter, and upon this rock," Peter is uh, Petros, and it, or Petra, and it's a stone versus the rock, which is foundation which was very relatable to those people at that time because there's just so many layers of solid rock everywhere in the Jerusalem area. And they would hollow these out and make natural or, you know, make uh, corrals. And in one, there was a cave in the side of the corral that you just you just thought, okay, I can see a manger there, right? The Christ child. Like you're you're envisioning exactly. Yes. That is so awesome, man. Well, there was an. Some people might not get this, but there was a an olive tree stump that one of our team members, one of our team leaders, <laughs> wanted to take back, and he brought it back here to Glen Rose, Texas, to oh, the wow. Creation Science Museum there, and they were working on it, working on it, and. Uh, they said, Tom, get down there and twist that stump out of there. And I hopped down there and I grabbed a hold of that stump and I started twisting it around and around and around and the stump breaks loose and they bring it back to Texas. This is a fact. They bring it back to Texas. Nothing miraculous. This is just natural, but perhaps providential. And they had it down at Glen Rose and they put it in the ground and they're moisturizing and a, a root and when you think of that, of course, you know, those wow. familiar with the prophecy and the root of Jesse, you know. So can you go in <laughs> and, and see this today? Oh, sure, somewhere? sure. I Glenn think. Rose, the Creation Museum. Okay, yes. that's cool. Man. Yeah, let me know if you'd like to go. I'd love to go down there with you. Yeah, that sounds awesome. Thank you. 
we went uh, in 2008 down on the Dead Sea to the Qumran Plateau where the Dead Sea Scrolls were found. Right. And um, the most famous image, uh, people often think of it as Cave 1. What they're looking at is actually Cave 6, and it's directly across the ravine from the plateau. And uh, it's the one where you can see right into it, you know, and there's actually a hole coming in through the top. And mm. while well, we were excavating on the plateau itself, and we took down uh, a square, which is five meters by five meters, and it was a cooking area. So we immediately started uncovering, you know, these huge uh, pots and things like that. Um, very interesting. I-, I couldn't begin to tell you how many people a year are walking across that dirt and eight and ten inches down where uncovering bronze coins and silver coins wow. from 2,000 years ago. It's fascinating. Yeah. While I was there, the uh, Hamas was firing missiles out of Gaza, of course, which is over on the, the Mediterranean coast. And we were seeing the Israeli, their, their bases in the northern part of Israel, they would take off east, come down the Jordan Valley, and they would come screaming right by us at a low altitude because the Dead Sea is the lowest place on earth. And they would uh, come down low enough where we could see in their cockpits. And then just as they passed us, they would cut back west to go over and hit the Hamas and Gaza. So oh, very interesting experience. Wow, wow. Take us to your two trips to Turkey. Okay, sure. We were looking for the Ark. Um, Mount Ararat is uh, in eastern Turkey, uh, six miles from Iran, two or three or four miles from uh Armenia? Okay. Armenia, yeah. So we are looking for the ark. We're going all the way up on top. I went twice. I went in 2010 and 2011, and we didn't find it. We labored, uh, incredible labor, incredible labor. I mean, we worked hard. It's, uh, you know, a glacier on top, and so we're cutting down through the ice. It's a 17,000-foot mountain, and uh, there just simply is no air, you know, and so... Uh, those who aren't used to it, you take about five steps and then you have to stop and get everything back under control. Right. The first time I went up, it was a bit disorganized. Typically, you want to leave at midnight and it's about a four to six hour climb to the peak. And that's kind of typical in mountain climbing because they want to hit the peak in time to see the sunrise. It's, it's kind of a nice thing. Uh-huh. But ours was just a mess and we did not leave until about noon and so we spend and regrettably I was 49 years old at the time and the gentleman that was with me was 69 years old and we were both in you know really good condition for Texans but we're not used to 17,000 foot mountains and uh, our Kurds who I appreciate the Kurds very much but man they just walked off and left us so you've got you know these two Texans of finding their way up the side of a major mountain in eastern Turkey. Oh. and um, How concerned were you for your own safety at that point? Well, on it, it was, you're focused more on just trying to move. I'm, I, people don't realize when you're going up an incline like that and there is no air. It, it's just uh, uh, no exaggeration. You take about five steps and then you have to stop and get it under control. Were you and, concerned this is where you were going to come to rest? Uh, I was before it was over. We came out of the rock field to the glacier. We put our crampons on and we began, we could see the peak. Now we can clearly see the peak. 
and we crossed the shoulder of the mountain and we're coming up to the peak. Well, our Kurds had already been to our summit camp and were on their way back down. They wanted, through just motions, you know, we don't speak Kurdish, um, they were asking us if we wanted to follow them back down. Well, I'm thinking, well, the summit camp's just on the other side of the peak. And I had no idea what we were getting into. Um, they went on and passed. And five minutes later, the sun dropped behind the mountains to the east. And the instant it did, the temperature drop and the uh, effect of that is um, it, it, it creates a vacuum that just pulls the air up to the peak. That's why so often you see pictures of Mount Ararat and it's crowned with this cloud cover. And so it was, I mean, the wind was, I don't know, 60, 80, 90 miles an hour. Yeah. And it was a whiteout. And we didn't know how to get to the summit camp. Now, foolishly, and I, I teach you, Keith, you know, you need to have the means to preserve your life and the lives of others. You need to carry that. That's your responsibility. And I learned... Uh, an important lesson from this, you can go into another area that isn't your expertise. I'd never let anybody carry my pistol. Mm -hmm. And when I'm in Africa, I never let another per person carry my rifle. That's my responsibility. But for some reason, I got on that mountain and I thought, we'll let them carry our tent, sleeping bag, and parkas, and we'll just carry our rain gear. And there was no way we could keep up with them. So we find ourselves next to the peak. We're over 16,000 feet. It's 530 in the evening mm. the sun has gone down to the west we're dealing with 60 90 mile an hour wind it was insane you cannot see across this room and we don't have a tent a sleeping bag or a parka and we were going to die i mean few i think are blessed perhaps with the opportunity to see their death Mm. and 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 come out of it and learn from the experience but i'm telling you that's exactly yeah. where we were at and it was intense and it's interesting there's so many things you learn about yourself when you have time to think about it. it's one thing to almost get hit by a car you don't have time to think about anything right but to have time i mean we are freezing to death here and my concern it, it never crossed my mind tom russell's gonna die Hmm. I'm I'm going to lose my I didn't I was thinking I'm not going to be able to provide for or lead my family man I'm not going to be able to teach another person a good thing uh, and it built a rage in me that was a ferocious thing and we prayed hmm. that the Lord would show us the next step that we need to take now when we came up over the shoulder I of the mountain I glanced to the left and up the slope I saw what I thought were some rocks sticking up through the ice. And we had prayed, Don, Patton, and I, and we had separated, and it was just going through my mind. I came 8,000 miles. This is so ridiculous. This was so foolish. I had violated basic principles of survival that I knew and that I teach, and this is where we're at. And I glanced over my shoulder, and Keith, it was like the Lord just parted those clouds enough for me to look right at those rocks. I looked at Don and I said, okay, we're, we're going to those rocks. I mean, we were going to die there. There was no way we were going to survive on that ice. So we turned and initially he didn't see it. He had his glacier 
uh, glasses on, which are very, very hard tinted sunglasses. I moved them up. He saw it and he said, oh, those won't do us any good. Well, it was better than what we had where we were. So, so many things to learn from this man. Uh, start looking around, identify what may be a way out and take that step. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, anything's better than where you're at. And so we sprinted over there and it wasn't rocks. The evening before, the Kurds that were carrying all our equipment up had run into the same problem, and so they had dumped our expedition bags and the Pelican, hard, big, hard plastic Pelican cases that we were carrying the ground-penetrating radar in. They had dumped them right there, and it was just joy. (laughs) I, I threw together a windbreak in minutes, and that was the thing, of course, that was killing us. I mean, we had superb Mount Everest capable boots and things like that. It was just the wind. And once we got out of the wind and we could actually get on those expedition bags and get off the ice, we were going to make it. Wow. So many wonderful lessons to learn from that. That's you know, not, not that I would want to go through it again. No, because, no, no. But. All set. <laughs> ah, that's pretty awesome. So what did you discover over in Turkey from an archaeological sense? We didn't discover anything. Okay. And there, there may have been... It was just survival at that point. At that point, it was survival. Yeah. I went back again the next year, and we had access to what we were hoping were some accurate coordinates that we gained through a satellite effort. Uh, and I, I'll just stop there. Mm-hmm. And But regrettably, our, our GPS and everything on top of the mountain wasn't giving us accurate readings and it's possible that the turkish military was thwarting that it just is because people probably don't realize this but the kurdish resistance group the pkk are very prevalent and very active and mount ararat is one of their bases i see and every year in fact while we were there as soon as ramadan ended we would see the rounds impacting mount ararat you know uh in 2011 the iranians actually came in to help the Turks attack the Kurds on the mountain. And so there's a serious military effort going on over there. Mm -hmm. It's the most complex, dangerous, (laughs) ridiculous situation. (laughs) It's not just the mountain trying to kill you, man. I mean, you you have an active war going on around you. And you're up there oh. trying to chip through the ice to find yeah, God. I'm trying to dig here. <laughs> I'm trying to dig here. Could you please hold your yeah, fire? Yeah, would you mind? <laughs> we'll continue our chat with Tom Russell in just a moment. But first, I want to ask you if you've tried Dr. Monroe's Freeze Gel yet. It seriously may be my favorite product among the Dr. Monroe's line. There's plenty to choose from. Not only, though, does the Freeze Gel have the same beneficial healing elements as the Pro 8000 cream, but it has that added cooling sensation from menthol that you get through the rollerball applicator. This stuff works for me. I'm willing to bet that it's going to work for you as well. Please head to DrMonroe'sCBD.com and at checkout, use promo code Keith, that's K-E-I-T-H, over at DrMonroe'sCBD.com. You're going to save an extra 15% off of your order, and don't forget that every purchase also goes to help kids who need it most through the Child Help Abuse Hotline. 20% of your purchase goes to that great organization. Please head to DrMonroe'sCBD.com today and help you and many others out all at the same time. So the last book you read, and I love how you pointed out here in the email reply, uh, the book True Believer by Jack Carr, 
episode 56. Yeah. Jack Carr is such an awesome guy, is he not? He is. Yeah. Uh, in every way. I mean, of course, is is he was a Navy SEAL, uh, retired as an officer, incredible experience, and yet he comes across as the most humble, right. enjoyable person. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So I would encourage folks to check out, uh, go to atthemikeshow.com, look for episode 56, so you can hear my conversation with Jack Carr. Great guy. Your five possessions on a deserted island, a Bible, a shovel, a saw, a quality machete, not, <laughs> not, yeah. a, not, not a run-in-the-mill one, right? Yeah. Um, and a satellite phone. That, those are very practical things. I don't think you're going to be on that island too long if you've got a satellite phone, I don't though. So. I, keep, I keep having to alter this question, Tom. It used to be if you could keep five possessions, right? And yeah. I would get different answers than five possessions on a deserted island. I'm going to have to just lose this question altogether because people keep finding loopholes like you. Wow, well, I'm going to have a satellite phone, so I'm not going to need those other four things for too long. Yeah. That's yeah. fun. Yeah. But I mean, your survival instincts would come in handy, right? Oh, yes. Yeah. Uh, let's see here. I like this. The most scared you've ever been, childhood and bullies, but um, nothing scares you anymore, huh? No. Yeah, yeah. So how did you overcome, if someone's listening right now or a parent of a child that's currently having to deal with bullies, what are some tips, some wisdom that you would give to those who are being bullied? In, in my experience, it was a question of... Um, developing the personal strength to be able to deal with it and that's not just the physical strength even though i think that's very very important it's the emotional strength uh, you you have to get to a point where you really do not care what they think if they are wrong and they're being unfair or unjust um, then that their bullying actually speaks uh, to the, their deficiency mm -hmm. uh, not yours and, uh, but you have to, you really, uh, one of the primary life skills is, is to develop personal strength and personal skill to be able to physically defend yourself, but especially important is developing uh, the mental toughness to do what needs to be done to protect yourself and to disregard, um, you know, things that are being said that really are unfair and unjust and uh, realize that those things are, on, are unimportant. I think that that's one of the great things that our country's struggling with right now is that we spend too much time uh, listening to weak, stupid people <laughs> and uh, their never-ending criticisms. Sure. Uh, and how, how do you convince mm -hmm. a young person to tune that stuff out? Because when you're growing up and you're going through these awkward phases mm -hmm. of middle school and high school uh, and beyond, quite frankly, it's easy to take the words of criticism to heart yes. and to really let them impact you and change how you view life in general. Absolutely. So like with my own kids, they may be facing an issue. I try to convince them time and time again, this isn't going to matter five years from now, five months from now, five days from now, what seems to be life altering to you is not going to be a big deal. But I don't know that I'm always effective in mm -hmm. conveying that message. So I just wonder, how do we talk to our kids and get through to them that this isn't the end of the world, this struggle that you're facing? Trust me, that'll come later, kids, when you have a mortgage payment. Mm -hmm. No, but it's like, you know, I, I, just, I just wonder what if there's a magic bullet, so to speak, 
as far as how to convince kids that what they're facing is going to pass. Mm-hmm. I, I think that these these are trials, all mm-hmm. right? And I think um, trials are good. Trials make us stronger. Mm-hmm. If, we, if we choose the right path and the right response, trials make us stronger and more capable. I don't believe that I would be nearly as capable as I am today of working with people spiritually and emotionally and with regard to their physical skills, defensive skills, if I hadn't experienced what I did. Mm. Uh, my mother was married six times. My dad was married three times. We were constantly moving. I was always the new kid on the block Gosh. and always just getting the crap beat out of me. Uh. And um, there wasn't typically, because I was being raised by my mother and my grandmother, uh, there wasn't anyone, uh, a strong male presence there and this to to show me this is what you need to get stronger this is how you defend yourself uh and have the conversations with me that you're having with your kids yeah. and uh you said to figure it out huh? you got to figure it out and so what i started doing and this is what i would counsel anybody to do is that you have got to start looking for sources of strength and encouragement uh one of the most powerful things dr jordan peterson points this uh, this out all the time one of the most powerful important things that we can do in life is assume personal responsibility and so uh, unfair no it's not fair um yeah i, I don't so let my kids say that word yeah, by the way yeah <laughs> uh, the word fair is a four-letter word in my house you because know? reality doesn't care right uh, well I, I don't have anybody to guide me here reality doesn't care and and so we assume the personal responsibility and start looking for resources that will provide us with direction with regard to developing our own mental and emotional intellectual and physical strength spiritual strength most certainly and what I did is I started looking. I, I think all of us, our hearts are inclined towards God and his word. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I also started looking um, to Jeff Cooper because I was a kid when I started reading his material. And I started looking to Louis L'Amour. And people mm-hmm. say, well, Louis L'Amour just wrote the, the same book over and over again and just gave it a different title. Uh, you know, the, the principles of positive masculinity of a man developing the physical strength and skill to do what needs to be done, not only to protect himself, but to protect others. I, I, I so desperately needed that, and I think most of us do. Mm. And so what I, I, it wasn't a conscious plan on my part. It was driven by my own personal need. But in effect, what I was doing was I was displacing the negative influences around me by pursuing positive and constructive resources. So, you know, God's Word, Jeff Cooper, Louis L'Amour, and then any positive, strong, masculine individual that I could be around. Mm -hmm. And I I just pursued that and soaked that up. And that serves to, I think, bring the negative into a proper focus. You see that it's actually weakness on the part of others. That's my counsel for anyone. You've got, it's like my experience on Mount Ararat. Man, you can't just, you just can't stand there and freeze on that ice path. You have got to start looking for the first step out of this mess, whatever it happens to be. You have to take that step and then look for the next and look for the next and look for the next. And then by the time it's done, you're living a life where you aren't afraid of anything. Mm -hmm. And it seems like uh, some great suggestions there for young men, adolescents who are trying to make their way in the world and finding these kinds of struggles. You talked about uh, Jeff Cooper, Louis L'Amour, and I was trying to think while you were talking, but what if what if I'm the parent of a girl listening to this and, and she's picked on or she's bullied or she's having a really rough go of it and she's constantly being displaced 
in her life as she's growing up. And correct me if uh, if you've got a better example here, but Annie Oakley. Mm-hmm. Let's go with Annie Oakley mm-hmm. for the girls, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you, your favorite comfort food is a great answer. It's a good steak. And I want to ask you, because mm-hmm. a lot of people, when I tell them where my favorite steak ever is, they go, nah, it's gimmicky. Ah, steak's overrated, blah, blah, blah. I disagree. Have you been to Amarillo and the Big Texan? Oh, sure. Many is that, I, is, yes. Okay, yeah. is it just me or is that not the greatest steak ever? That's great. Okay, That's great. all right. I want to make sure that somebody in this world agrees with me that that is worth driving up. Because if you time it right, you have a really light lunch. You can get up there in time for dinner from you Dallas. Sure can. You know? yes, you can. <laughs> and you'll, you'll yeah. be hungry and you'll be ready to go. Now, I'm not sitting there at the Big Texan uh, trying to eat a whole meal in under an hour to get it free. Yes. Because I want to enjoy my so, meal. Yeah. But I just love the Big Texan, and I have to get a plastic cup, you know, a souvenir cup every time I go. Perhaps one of the most enjoyable steaks, and I actually was able to enjoy it numerous times, was actually in the bush in Tanzania, and it was Cape Buffalo, which, of course, is beef. Mm -hmm. And uh, the gentleman who was working as our our cook uh, would, would cook it over a wood fire and beautifully seasoned and absolutely delicious and i realize <laughs> a large part of that may have been the ambiance uh-huh. or you <laughs> an might african been, safari right but, or you may have been starving after a day out in the bush you know <laughs> oh it was good yeah oh that's cool man what happened to you in your life in 1982 that really changed it was the biggest turning point in your life i you know what i in 1982 i made the decision uh that i wanted to start preaching i have you know kind of alluded to the difficulties of my my upbringing Mm -hmm. and that that chaos caused incredible anguish Mm -hmm. um and actually still touches our lives to this day me and my siblings and um i think that i was born to teach i remember uh, i adore my little sister she's the strongest woman she's the strongest person that i have ever known and uh I can remember her telling me, she's about two and a half, three years younger than me. She is so angry with me. We were kids and I was trying to tell her how to do something. And man, she was so angry because I always try to tell her how to do things. And so I, I think <laughs> that's I was a job born. of an older brother, is yeah, it not? <laughs> I think it is, yeah. Um, but I wanted to, um, I, want, I, I realized that had I been doing what God wanted me to do, I wouldn't have been experiencing all the pain in my life. Mm. And I realized that so much of the pain and the chaos we had endured, in fact, really all of it was related to people uh, choosing not to follow God's moral code, uh, loving him with all heart, mind, and soul, loving others as we do ourselves, doing unto others as we would have them do unto us. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to help people see that and make those positive changes in their life. And I didn't know anything. I mean, it's not like I had been raised studying the Bible or anything. I just knew enough to know, boy, this is the better way. Mm -hmm. And I knew people who were following that way and their lives were completely different than ours had been. And so that's what I wanted to do. Very good. I think that's what led me into uh, uh, wanting to be a firearms instructor. I have never been, I have competed with firearms um, and I love to hunt, but my greatest joy is in teaching and uh, I just feel compelled to do that. Everybody's got their talent, and I think God, that's what God designed me to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's why I, I have people out on the range, and 
uh, I am doing everything that I can to lift them up and to provide them with what they're going to need in the time that I've got. And I think it all stems from that's just what God designed me for. You list several founding fathers as individuals you would like to go back in history to meet. Washington, Jefferson, Madison, Mason, Patrick Henry. By the way, so glad to see George Mason Yes. Get some love here. Yes. I mean, that, that that guy is so underrated. There would be no Bill of Rights without George Mason. He's the father of the Bill of Rights. Absolutely. Uh, J- James Madison gets way too much credit. It's it's George Mason who refused to sign the Constitution without a Bill of Rights. Absolutely. So George Mason, you can thank him for your rights much more than Madison. I think our country would be gone yeah. right now. Yeah. Oh, no, I'm not on these historical documents for all time with my signature. Well, that's because the man had principle and wanted some guarantees. Yes. And I really appreciate George Mason. Very underrated. But if you had to pick just the one, you can only go back and hang out at the Big Texan Steakhouse in Amarillo (laughs) with one founding father. Who's it going to be? It would be Jefferson. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, yeah. It would be Jefferson. Yeah. One of the most beautiful intellects that has ever existed. What a brain. Yeah. I'm with you on that. It, it wouldn't be a, a much of a conversation, though, because I, I I would just want to feed some questions and let him talk. Yeah. And, um, and, and correct me if mm-hmm. you've got a different impression of Jefferson, but I can identify with him because I prefer these conversations like you are having yes. with me one on one. Yeah. You get me in front of a crowd. I, I just don't thrive. Not at a party, not no. in a big crowded setting. And I think he was the same way, whereas he would not speak that much at the Continental Congress. His brain was constantly going, and I guarantee you, if you sat down with him in Amarillo at the Big Texan Steakhouse one-on-one, like you said, you feed him questions, and, and his, his genius will just spill out. I think he really thrived much more in those settings, especially in just writing the one-on-one letters with John Adams, for example. What would be very interesting, think about this for a moment, what if Jefferson with some chosen men, um, what if he had organized the Constitution? Yeah. How different would it be? Would the loopholes that have allowed governmental excess, uh, would they have occurred? Um, would he have blocked Hamilton's yeah. efforts to lay a foundation? You think that he would, was sent overseas on purpose? Uh, isn't that an interesting <laughs> question? Yes, yeah. he was ambassador to France at the time. Right. I mean, so here we have the key mind, the key mind in the Re- American Revolution. And when they're going to reconsider the <laughs> Articles of Confederation, mm-hmm. uh, which the, the, may well have been. Yeah. yeah. yeah the, the guy they knew they, they would get the most resistance from was parked in France. Let's send him to France. Yeah, exactly. I agree completely. Thomas Jefferson all day uh, would love to sit down with him. While I am fully convinced that the American founders were just men of high intellect and genius gathered in one place in time to form the basis for our nation. It's not like they dropped out of thin air with these ideas. These things had been going back. I mean, I think uh, Socrates was cited several times. So it was this string of ideas that like snowballed over time, over two centuries, effectively. So enlighten us on two gentlemen in history that you would like to meet, William Blackstone and... Frederick Bastier. 
Oh, yes. I mean, these are th- these are people that need to be discussed. If <laughs> if uh, uh, probably, m- you know, many people aren't familiar with Blackstone. Blackstone's commentary on law. He was so insightful into uh, British common law and uh, as far as articulating what that law was mm-hmm. and the specific requirements and prohibitions that that it encompassed and it just serves uh as, it's so foundational right to that's the word uh, yes it's foundational uh to what our law system should be yeah. of course ours has been uh so so diffused and corrupted uh by various political interest you know we have uh moral law versus political law Mm -hmm. and there's been such an injection of political law that has nothing to do with morality and that's what law really is a true law good law is always relational it's intended to govern relations as richard mayberry has said um, the two primary concepts do all that you've agreed to do and do not encroach upon another person or their property that's the basis of law. Yeah, and, and I mean that's that's what Thomas Jefferson's philosophy exactly. was. If it doesn't encroach, if it doesn't break my neighbor's leg, yes, right, then then what concern is it to me? Yes, I'm so glad that you mentioned these type of people. Talk to us about Frederick Bastier. Yeah, yeah. Now <laughs> Frederick Bastier came along just a little bit afterwards. He came. He was born in. Uh, 1800, 1801, 1802, something like that. I want to say is 1800 though, and um, he was uh, influenced by all the. He was a brilliant, brilliant individual. He was beautifully articulate, uh, especially in his writing, and uh, he benefited from the same influences that informed our founders, and may mm. have been uh, influenced. We never know by Thomas Jefferson and his effect on France. And he continued to build this knowledge base and wisdom that is a brilliant light. His book, The Law, is a very short book, and yet it is so concise and so articulate that it beautifully explains the purpose of law and how if law is misused, for instance, by government, that it then begin, becomes a tool of plunder, which we witness constantly. Mm-hmm. He anticipated uh, the dangers of socialism. Yeah. He could already see that concept being applied in France and what that would inevitably lead to, uh, the complete perversion of law. And what's fascinating is Frederick Bassier contracted tuberculosis and he died at the age of 48, the year he finished the law. He just finished the law when he passed. And once you read it and then read it a second time and then a third time and you are just moved by the power of his arguments because law is a wonderful thing. Law is uh, what results in order and prosperity and peace, peace of mind, security for our family, security for our children and their future. And when you come to understand, oh, this is what it is, uh, it, it's empowering. And then you begin to see the problems of what uh, Mayberry refers to as political law that involves no morality, but actually is a perversion of the law implemented to empower 
politicians and various groups. And that is a perfect segue into one of the greatest quotes by him that if this doesn't apply to America 2021, I don't know what does. When plunder becomes a way of life for a group of men in a society, over the course of time, they create for themselves a legal system that authorizes it and a moral code that glorifies exactly. it. Exactly. Uh-huh, that exactly. is where we are. Isn't it? And of course, it's where every government eventually goes because government, as Washington pointed out, is force and it is power uh, and it is going to attract the attention of the selfishly ambitious and the greedy and they will tirelessly work to insert themselves in the governing process Mm -hmm. get control rewrite law for their own selfish purposes and like you said it's exactly where we're at is the idea of the founders is the genius of george mason and our bill of rights is the eloquence of thomas jefferson and the warnings from others that we've discussed is america at a place today where you think that our system as it is meant to be is retrievable maybe not a hundred percent but do you think that we are past that have we crossed the rubicon as far as And I don't like to get so heavy on this podcast because, I mean, I specifically set this up so that I had a place to talk to people aside from the daily grind of all the political stuff that we discuss on my real job, which is Pat Gray Unleashed, uh, that podcast. But I do want to ask you, because I think that your brain operates along those lines, do you see genuine hope for our country or where are we right now? Absolutely. 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 I absolutely. I'm glad to hear that. I appreciate that. In fact, I think that what we're seeing uh, today is, you know, indicative of a rising tide of awareness. uh, It's like you said at the very beginning of -hmm. this podcast, you said yourself that, for I'm going to butcher this, but you basically said hard times awaken good hearts. And I think that's probably the same principle you're applying here, very consistent. Absolutely, I think that that our progress, uh, that this this awakening and this uh, force that we're beginning to exercise is what has pulled the curtain back. Mm. Uh, I I think that we were in much greater danger actually five years ago. I think we were in much greater danger 15 years ago because we did not see how deep the corruption was. Mm. We did not, we couldn't, um, for a number of reasons, but we couldn't appreciate how much control darkness was exercising in our country. And we sensed it and we began to awaken and we became more active. And you saw that in the Tea Party movement, uh, which ultimately resulted in the election of Donald Trump. Uh, all that we see taking place is not because of Donald Trump. Donald Trump is because of us. So is, is there any hope? Well, of course there is. My wife pointed out about four or five months ago, she says, hold it, there are 75 million of us, and there are. In fact, I think there are many more, it's, it's a much greater number now. Uh, many who were asleep before have awakened, mm. 
And I think that we're going to, we are, I believe, Keith, that we are witnessing a powerful movement driving back the darkness, perhaps an unstoppable movement uh, of light and goodness, powerful intention. If people want to find you online, you're at truthinchristministry.com. Yes. And the firearm aspect that we discussed earlier, AmericanFirearmsAcademy.com. Dot com. That's right. You got two good domains there, man. How'd you pull that off? <laughs> I thinking, <laughs> thinking, and searching and finding yeah. what was available. Yeah. Truthinchristministry.com and AmericanFirearmsAcademy.com. Tom Russell, it's been a pleasure getting to know you today, man. I appreciate you coming in here. Thank you, Keith. Thank you for having me. It's been my pleasure. I had a wonderful time getting to know Tom Russell. Uh, what a great man. He's got such a heart uh, for God and for others. It was a pleasure getting to know him today. Hey, next week I sit down with Josh Nelson. If you're familiar with Cambry Nelson, who was my guest back in episode 48, Josh is her husband, and he is fun to talk to in his own right. That's going to be next week here on At The Mic, and I hope you'll join us. In the meantime, I hope you'll head over to At The Mic Shop. Com. Take a look at the selection of items available as you start shopping for the Christmas season. And if you wouldn't mind rating and reviewing the podcast over on Apple iTunes, I'd be grateful for that as well. I mean, if it's a positive review. <laughs> please do share this podcast with others. Uh, until next time, please go be free. And thank you for listening. This has been At The Mic with Keith, an independent podcast production. Head to atthemikeshow.com for archived episodes, sponsor information, and ways to connect.